This program is supported by A to Z Wineworks, a best for the world B Corp, dedicated to combining commerce with conscience while offering great quality, food-friendly Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and Chardonnay. A to Z Wineworks, the essence of Oregon. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. There have been several grim constants of the pandemic. Ongoing economic collapse, which has left nearly half of all Americans out of work. Overworked healthcare workers who are forced to make impossible choices about whom to give care. And the disproportionate impact on Black and Latino communities, which have fatality rates that are two to four times higher than their share of the population. In the August issue, Khadija Queen writes a profound and poetic account of the first months of the pandemic, touching on memory, family, gender, race, anxiety, and a desire for a change in how we care for one another. I spoke with Queen about the form of her piece, as well as the issues it raises. So I wanted to start off by asking, um, you've written in a variety of different forms. Non sequitur was a prose play. I'm so fine is this series of lists, but it's also narratives and it's also prose. And the subtitle to this piece reads, Is Wihitsu from the Early Months of the Pandemic. So could you explain briefly what a Zuihitsu is and why you decided to work in that format? Sure. Um, it's a Japanese form and about a thousand years old invented uh, by a woman it was basically like say shonagon i think is how you say her name and it's from she had this 10th century blog i want to call it <laughs> that's the stuff that i've been reading that i had been reading about it basically about her life observations that she's making about people's character um lists of things and it felt like Using that was the only way I could approach trying to write about this was to have a loose form and also, but also have rules and a prescription. So it had to be both flexible and open, but also with some guidelines, if that makes sense. Because I felt like, I don't know, writing a poem wasn't working and writing a straightforward essay wasn't working. But if I could do whatever I wanted, then <laughs> I could get what I needed out of that awful experience of this sort of deep anxiety and worry that I was having. Right. In most of the canonical early authors of the Japanese Zuihitsu around the 13th and 14th centuries, as you were saying, were writing in isolation amid disasters mm -hmm. and social upheavals, and their work tended to focus on the theme of impermanence all of which invites obvious parallels to the conditions under which you wrote this piece. So how present were those historical parallels to you as you were writing this? And were there any particular Zuihitsu, classical or modern, that um, inspired you or you looked to for inspiration? I'm a big fan of Kamiko Han. Um, I read several of hers. One that I was reading at the time was Brain Fever 
which are more poem-like than some of the other ones. She wrote another one after Basho um, Narrow Road to the Interior that I loved. God, I want to say it's like 10 years old, but I love her work very much. And so I was thinking about that as well. But I felt very present in the moment. If there was any historical presence, I would say, because I had been sort of inhaling apocalyptic stuff, (laughs) (laughs) watching YouTube videos about the 1918 pandemic, the flu pandemic, and watching disaster movies, that might have been it. I feel like that's not very scholarly, (laughs) but that's where I was at at the moment. Uh, it It felt very contemporary and in the moment, and that reaching back to that older form was a way to try to make sense of what was happening in, in that moment. No, I, that's a wonderful way to put it. Um, and I have to say, speaking of inspiration, I think probably my favorite part of this piece is when you go from Dr. Sidia Hartman to Gita Board to WWF wrestling to John Carpenter as <laughs> they live. And then to, um, a Jennifer Aniston movie. So I'm so happy. That makes me happy because that is just my brain. <laughs> I think that's a lot of people's brain though that are that I'm people that I'm friends with, scholar friends, poet friends, writer friends, teacher friends. We all like just because we read Debor and um Bart doesn't mean we didn't watch, you know, Roddy Roddy Piper on wrestling in the eighties when we were little kids, you know? Right. So is we're human beings, I guess. And there is room for the intellectual in the everyday. Mm. I guess it's the other reason why I wanted to put those in there, because that is my everyday and the everyday of people that I know. And even my friends or my, and my folks who are not scholars and writers and teachers appreciate the wisdom of that kind of work, right. that kind of thought work. So it was important to me to have that in there. And speaking of Dr. Hartman, at one point you describe hearing reports on the disproportionate rate of COVID-related deaths among Black Americans, and you write, quote, I think about the commoditized spectacle of Black suffering that Dr. Sidia Hartman describes in scenes of subjection, terror, slavery, and self-making in 19th century America, and I refuse to contribute, end quote. Mm-hmm. And then later when you're talking about the project of telling the stories of your family's history, you write, quote, reimagining is slow because of the pain. I want it to be honored, but I don't want to make it a parade. End quote. So one of the remarkable things about this piece is the way you manage to approach both private and public loss indirectly enough through these moments and materials and stray thoughts that it never feels like you're trying to contain or simplify it, which might be one way of reading your line at the end about the philodendron, quote, I move this living thing closer to shadow. Could you talk about the risk of direct light and spectacle and how a writer might avoid that while still responding to the questions, the injustices of her moment? That is a magnificent question. I think I probably read that chapter of Scenes of Subjection, I don't know how many times. Um, I used it heavily during my dissertation. And it's like one of those, just the first chapter, and that's not even going into the rest of it, but like 
really getting at the origins of the spectacle of Black suffering and how it was used to continue to subjugate Black people rather than help Black people Mm -hmm. by, like, watching their suffering was something that was turned into, um, you know, something that could be consumed. Mm -hmm. It was it was like an appeal, like we always talk about appealing to people's better nature, but it, it really didn't do that on a large scale until we got to, you know, took hundreds of years. <laughs> so that's a little bit too slow for me. And I feel like we've done it over and over and over and over again. And we see it now with the videos. One of my friends has a book, a chat book called Surveillance, talking about those um, surveillance videos that capture Black people being murdered on camera, and then nothing changes. Somebody gets shot on camera, and then there's another one tomorrow, and then there's another one being suffocated tomorrow, and then there's another one and another one. And we're so, we're so tired of it. There's a, there's always a talk about us becoming immune to it, but I wouldn't say, as Black people, we're ever immune. It's more like either we have to be in it because it's people we know. Or because it's our family and ourselves, our lives are in danger and we just have to take it and then it becomes internalized, like the harm. But talking about it and laying it out for white people to like say you should feel sorry for us or this is awful. Like to me, that's what I mean about a parade because it's just for show and nothing gets done about it. I'm interested in something being done about it. I'm interested in people uh, listening to black men, young men like Elijah McClain when he says, I can't breathe, you know, to get off of him and let him breathe. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah. You wrote this before George Floyd's uh, killing took place. And obviously there's been a huge amount of activism that also seeks to do more than just say, this person died, but rather like, let's change this. So more people don't die. Um, How have you, have you been involved with that? Especially considering, you know, you're a mom, you're, you're a teacher. And then of course the pandemic, which maybe doesn't make all of this as safe as it could be. Yeah. Well, it's never safe. Right. And Mm. we're seeing what's happened in Portland and, and what the current occupant in the White House is saying yeah. that he wants to do in the cities, you know, that is extremely disturbing. But I, I was just talking to my son about this. I'm like, well, what can we do? I'm just, I'm just a raggedy old lady. <laughs> <laughs> right? I can't march. I can't run. You know, uh, what I can do is donate. I can get the word out. I can support my friends who are doing it. Um, moral support. Etc. And I can write about it. That's that's what I'm, what I have the power to do, and I can teach. There's a book called A Mercy by Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. It is not as well known as the other ones, but it is like a paradise lost for the Americas. And I recommend everyone read that book if they want to understand how capitalism and racism and sexism and power and uh, settler colonialism operate just to see it dramatized or, or to read it and experience her imagining of what that might have been like for a group of people, mm-hmm. um, both white and black 
and native as well for men and for women for free people and enslaved she's got like the whole american origin story so i can talk about that kind of stuff Mm. and help people to recognize that this is not new this is old and it's based upon like she's trying to say the original sin right of taking over land and turning it into a commodity and then brutalizing the people who occupy it so we have to address it and um we we have to address it there's no way around it because we're all in the same space together and uh there's another uh, quote that i like by gwendolyn brooks it's from her poem paul lawrence dunbar we are each other's business we are each other's harvest we are each other's magnitude and bond. Mm. And I believe that. I think we have to care for each other. We have to lead with love and not death and destruction and crime and punishment. Because that's the way to life. Is, is Love is the way to life. Care is the way to life. And if we want to live, that is how we have to operate and where we have to begin with our hearts. Absolutely. And this was written towards the beginning of the pandemic. And I feel like, just speaking for me, I feel like I've gone through like five different cycles of different sort of (laughs) feelings about what's going on. Uh, And, you know, you were mentioning how so much of the problems that exist today are kind of baked into America. It's inseparable from what this country has always been. And one of the things that's happened during the pandemic is that you've seen this real breakdown of what we thought, or what we've been told, rather, is good. So free markets, uh, no government support for people who are, you know, unable to work. And we've seen Mm -hmm. this real kind of fracturing of what America is supposed to be. And so if you feel like you were writing this now, would you perhaps focus more on that, that element of what's happening because I think you do a really beautiful job of expressing the anxiety and the the uncertainty, but we're in, you know, we're in a completely different place right now. Well, the thing is, and I had had this question during um, the interview for my job. Someone asked me about this panel that that I was on writing in the age of, um, you know, the current age and, you know, how it's kind of dystopian. And I was like, well, it's been like that for us for 400 years. It's been right. like that for us from the beginning. It's always been 1984 for Black people. Get over That's it. That's correct. <laughs> I mean, and longer than that for Indigenous people. If you read Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silko, that's very plain to see. So it's just now that the veneer has been taken off for people who are in denial, basically. And they have to deal with it because it's interrupting their lives. It's always been interrupting our lives, mm-hmm. you know. It's always been interrupting Black people's lives and and ending our lives, which is why I wanted to put that out, um, the stuff about my family in there, because we are so tired of it. (laughs) We're so tired. You know, I I will never know how my grandfather lost his fingers. He wouldn't talk about it, but it's one of the reasons why they left the cell. One of my uncles had had his arm cut off uh, above above the elbow. So, you know, there's, there's, there's this deeply buried brutality that has not been addressed 
and it's been covered over by this, you know, we're this great country and all that. Yeah, okay, yep, we are. <laughs> and I love Black people and what we've been able to accomplish despite all that. Oof, I think we, we're, the, we're what makes America great, to be honest <laughs> with you. I probably shouldn't be saying that on this interview. But, like, we are a great country. I served my country. I was in the Navy for five years. So I'm American, too. And I don't think that that's what people see when they look at me. And that's that's what's wrong. We we haven't opened up our definition of what America could be. Hmm. And we don't think of our variety as an asset when it is. Homogeneity in the melting pot has been what has been drilled into us from elementary school. I remember those lessons. But variety and care and uh, adapting to change is what helps civilizations survive. And if we refuse to change, that leads us down, um, you know, it leads us down paths that have been trod by unsuccessful civilizations. Mm -hmm. So I think we ought to operate from a place of care. And um, if we do that, when we make our choices, care for other people, care for ourselves, we make choices based out of that, then we stand a chance of surviving this. Right. You can't just wait for that uh, that antidote, that vaccine that's going to swoop in and make everything normal again. Or Donald Trump getting kicked out of the White House and everything's normal again, right? We've got to imagine a new normal in which something like this couldn't happen again because we care for each other too much. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. We have to use our imaginations. We can't just go back to the program because in that program, indigenous people were being murdered by the police at the highest rates of, of anybody, even higher than the rate of black people. You know, we've, we had children, we still have children in cages at the border. Mm-hmm. Do we really want that normal? I don't fucking want that normal, excuse my language. <laughs> it's okay to swear. Can don't we worry. imagine something better? Yes. Yeah. I think we can do that. I think we have that power. I think it would be beautiful if we could imagine something that enables people to live in a home and be educated and have their health cared for like most other industrialized countries. All right. Don't get me started. <laughs> well, we can we could turn it back to the structure and form. Um so the piece begins with a yellowed philodendron leaf and your desire to en- understand why it is dying in order to perhaps rescue it. That first section ends, rescue the action as opposed to miracle, a noun received, which shifts responsibility to some mysterious else. I want to behave responsibly in preserving any life or honoring its end. Hands not moving in slight, but service. And the sudden introduction of slight, of, de- of deception, is a bit deceptive itself in the subtle way it slides a new concern into the reader's mind without calling attention to it. But this fear of deception, both of being the deceiver and of being deceived, becomes a powerful cur- current throughout the piece. For instance, in the second to last section, we have a list of, quote, deceptive things, healing, archives, talk of inclusion, 
literary theories, second dinner hunger, the interruptions of children, trending top Twitter topics, the virus. And of course, there's the implied deception in the title, False Dawn. So returning to that first section, what do you think was in your mind when you wrote of the hands moving not in slight? I mean, I think most people who watch the news know what that's about. But But what I will say is that I wanted to bring focus to action in the body. Not just words, not just platitudes, not just like political finagling. But like, what are we actually doing to care for one another during this historic time? That's that's what I was interested in. And gaslighting is um, something that is one of my pet peeves, partly because it took me a while to like know what it was. I was like in my 30s before I knew what it was. Well, that's part of gaslighting. It doesn't exist. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> So I am just very vigilant about um, precision. So I think that what we say we should do, and I don't like lies. I think they perpetuate um, harmful circumstances, and they harm people. We've got to tell the truth, and we've got to act, and, you know, Follow the science mm-hmm. and follow Gwendolyn Brooks. <laughs> the the other gesture that didn't make it in there, I think it was not it. It wasn't there. It was Fauci's facepalm. But <laughs> yeah. And you know, you're talking about obviously the news now is a lot of spectacle rather than information. <laughs> And, you know, spectacle figures into this piece as well. But another concern in these passages is about slowness. There's a recurring interest in slowness in this piece, both as a way of giving loss its due and and as a way of avoiding further loss. And the writing itself also demands that we slow down to follow its nonlinear movements because you can't ever read poetry fast. Close to the beginning, you write, to slow down a daily decision, moment by moment. Was writing this piece a way for you to slow down? Or, or is it, and is it also a, a request for others to slow down and perceive the value of slowness? I think, yes. I think part of it was thinking about the vaccine and like how long it's going to take and how everyone was so worried that it was going to take a long time and that we need to rush it and all that. And I'm just... Like, wait a minute, we have to do it safely. We have to do it correctly. And we need to pay attention to what the virus is doing. We don't know anything about this virus. So we need to slow down, shut down, and wait. Mm -hmm. And our society wants everything right now in sound bites. And I am also a person who tends to move fast. But when it comes to information this important, I think it's important to take our time and be accurate. And slowness allows for precision and accuracy and examination. So um, there's value in that. I think um, we've got to change what we value. 
do we want to speed things up and, and just throw people away? I don't want to do that. I would like to slow down and preserve as much life as I can. And I don't understand I don't understand the logic that says we do otherwise. And thinking about slowness in terms of poetry, I guess, is that uh, when you were writing this, was, was there a certain rhythm that you imagined or was it just? Oh, man. I was like crying watching the news when I was writing this and like texting my sisters. <laughs> <laughs> the first draft was like written in two days and I'm like sitting on the couch watching CNN and seeing all these, the faces of all these people who are dying, losing their family members and not able to hold their hand. And mm. I found out my best friend's grandmother died in the course of writing this, not of the virus, but like her grandmother raised her and she couldn't be there at the funeral because of the virus, mm. you know? It's just, it was just a horror show. And I, I poured it out. Uh, ironically, very quickly. <laughs> but the editing process was slower over the course of a couple months. So that's where the precision comes in. So we have this urgency to get out this, um, to get out the feeling part. Mm -hmm. And then we take our time and, and use our intellect to refine things and make sure that it's precise. So what did the editing process look like? Um, were there any constraints that you gave yourself or were you just trying to kind of chisel away and find that feeling? Because it is very, I mean, it is very profound in a way that you wouldn't expect something that is coming from that moment to be so profound. I, I appreciate that. I think... Um... This was, I think I wrote like three poems in January, but this is the first thing that I wrote. That was the first thing I wrote since the pandemic started. And um, whenever I get that feeling, I, I listen to it. Um, but Katie was amazing because I tend to be in the floaty poet space, <laughs> right? But she was like, okay, this, she, she was very good at pointing out places where I need to clarify the meaning to the reader and not just have it be like jazz where the reader can interpret for themselves, mm -hmm. you know, because at some points you need to have that precision and clarity. So I appreciated that so very much. And I also appreciated that she let it live as, as like poem-like, you know, whenever there were spaces where um, the information needed to be cleared up, like, um, like with my son talking about the air thing with the Legionnaire's disease, mm -hmm. that fact. There was a lot behind that fact and a lot of dry information. And I was like, I can't put that in there. That's, there's no music in it. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to revise it, you know, and she was good about helping find that happy medium between the poetic and the journalistic. So it was a great experience. That's great. That's good to hear. And Going back to Toni Morrison, because you, you, cite, you cited the source of self-regard and how it, quote, unfooled you about your feelings of uselessness outside the cocoons of home and work. Could you talk about how or why it had that effect and what particular essays in that book you would recommend to listeners? Oh, particular essays. 
Hmm. You can also just say, I, read the whole thing. That's fine. <laughs> I, I think I would rather say that. <laughs> you can even like flip around and wherever you go in that book, you'll find something that is incredibly uh, thought provoking and at times uh, perspective changing. Um, in the origin of others, not to go back to you know, literature, but she talks a, a lot about Melville. And I think also in books like A Mercy, she's talking, conversing with him because he was so instrumental in um, sort of defining or calling for an American literature as distinguished from British literature. Mm. But he was operating from a place of white supremacy, even though... <coughs> He had ideas with like Benito Serino um, and the confidence man about the fallacy of race and um, even in like Taipei, like showing that there is hypocrisy mm-hmm. in Eurocentric ways of thinking. He was still operating from a belief. You could tell because of the way that he portrayed characters who are black or of color. He was still operating from a place that presumed the supremacy of whiteness. Mm-hmm. And I think what Toni Morrison in her oof is trying to do is to debunk that notion. And um, but not not only that, to assert that black people, yes, we live under oppression, but we have always been amazing we have always made great things despite how we've been treated in this country and that is i think the thing that gave me hope in reading her work is how our brilliance endures despite the difficulty and um i don't want to go through any more difficulty no (laughs) i've been i've been through a lot (laughs) through a lot of stuff um so I'd rather not it be this awful and I just want to be a part and I think Toni Morrison was a part of changing cultural thinking and practice towards more humanity and care that's it for everybody towards more humanity and care and I think what she was trying to do is say you know listen to black women because we know what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's so crucial what you said that to understand that even if there are criticisms of Eurocentrism and you know the hypocrisies and you know that sort of thing that you can still come from a place where you're just accepting those things as true and not actually not criticizing the entire thing, but rather these you know, different little parts and how that looking at the whole is how we could get out of this hole that we're in. So exactly right. We can choose different behaviors. We can choose different beliefs and and everything's not going to fall apart. In fact, everything will be much better Mm -hmm. if we shift toward more care. Yes. And And I think the emphasis on care is also really crucial because it's it's obviously a good thing and it's not, you know, there should not be any limit to it. 
Well, I, I would say, you know, there can be. You know, if you're being abused or if you don't have the support you need, there is, there's definitely limits. There are definitely limits to care physically, emotionally. You know, caregivers need support too. They need a lot of support. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's why we have to build strong communities and, you know, not call the police on people all the time because they don't help. Right. (laughs) It's just crime and punishment. Yeah. So so tired. <laughs> no, I mean, um, being tired, I think, is a hard thing to write about meaningfully, and I think that you—that's one of the things that is expressed through this work. That there is a weariness to these things that have simply not been addressed. So I think it's—I um, don't know. I really enjoyed this piece. And I have to ask, how is your philodendron doing now? Is it, did it make oh, it? Oh, it is so happy. <laughs> it is so happy right now. Violet, it is thriving. I, I just had a little, a new little leaf unfurl. It's in the exact right space, exact right light. It's good. Excellent. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on or... I don't think so. I hope the FBI doesn't try to call me. <laughs> Come to my house. Because <laughs> I'm talking about their president. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> well, that's why, that's why, like, the, you know, the WWF part is great. Because, obviously, in addition to actually being a part of, you know, participating in wrestling himself, Trump does kayfabe all the time. Like it's such a part of his oh my God. trick, you know? So. <laughs> Ugh. See, now I didn't even know that because I haven't muted and blocked. So <laughs> I didn't even know. But, you know, wrestling was important to me growing up. That was like the thing that we watched because we only had like five channels. You know, two, five, two, four, five, seven, nine, thirteen. That was our <laughs> channels. <laughs> we had to turn the knob. So we watched wrestling. That was our spectacle and our excitement. So for him to like try to take over everything is so gross. But the theatricality of wrestling and sort of the dance of it as winning and losing and violence and, and like the outfits that they wear, um, sometimes representing, you know, people's identities mm-hmm. um, and having all that invested in things, kind of like sports, you know, any of those kinds of deals that serve as a, I don't know, an avatar for a self. I think we've got to move out of, and we are forced to do so during this pandemic. We're sort of forced to face who we are outside of these trappings um, and the things that we can't access anymore. Really look at our relationships and our communities and our society and see how we can shape it. And I think it's exciting, you know, I think it's exciting to imagine. It doesn't feel like work to me to imagine what things might be like mm-hmm. if there was care. That that feels like a pleasure. And because of our, I guess, our Puritan roots, pleasure is this thing that's meant to be suppressed or filtered through religion. Mm-hmm. 
right? Or and made into a commodity, absolutely. Yep. So, if it, a pleasure comes out of imagining, that's free. That means you're free. So, I don't know who would hate on that if we're talking about <laughs> freedom, land of the brave, land of the free, home of the brave, right? So, why would we hate on that? I don't know why we would. It's kind of great. Let's be free together. Yeah. Well, we can end it there on that note of hopefulness. And thank you so much for doing this interview. I really appreciate this time. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.